All right. Golly, what a fun chatter that was to listen to. So last week, uh, Sam started us off. And thanks, Sam, you did a great job. Um, and we're going to jump uh, back into First Peter. But before we do so, I want to pray. And also, before we pray, we're really pushing people to, I think I got one with me. Yeah, I do. To get one of these First Peter journals, First and Second Peter, it's got the Word of God on one side, and then it's got like a place for you to journal on the other. You don't have to get one of these, you know, but if you don't mark up your Bible and you want to mark something up, this is the thing to mark up. We've ordered a bunch of them. We can order more if we want to. They're $5. If you don't have $5, get one anyway. But if you want one of these before I jump in, because I'm going to be highlighting some very specific words and phrases, okay, raise your hand. Okay, just raise your hand and we'll get you one. So we've got Sam, we've got, okay, we got one, two, yeah, there's three, four. So uh, Cameron, uh, Andrew, somebody, if you can just pay attention uh, to those and, and Adam and hand out a few of those so that we will be ready. So keep those hands up and we are going to jump in. Okay, so while this is my filler space, so while we are passing those out and before I pray, how many people were here for the Ephesians series? Okay, how many people were here for the beginning of the Ephesians series? Okay, so actually, if you noticed, looking around, that was about half the people. So I'm going to reiterate some things that we talked about in Ephesians that you're also going to see um, in First Peter as well, um, the heaviness of gospel. We got one back here on the back. Jesse Madison with his hands up. Yes. All right, so you ready? We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to see the word of God opened up in a moment, and let's just pray that he would go before us. Bow your heads. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for this amazing uh, book that you have given uh, to us in 1 Peter. Lord, I thank you for the people that have shown up on this uh, beautiful uh, snowy morning. And we are here for one reason and for one reason only, and that is to, to grow in our relationship with you as we worship you and as we hear from you. We show up on Sunday mornings with so many things running through our heads. Lord, I pray that you would remove those. I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds and our ears and our eyes to see the things that we need to see, Lord, because the truths that are in this passage have the ability to truly transform our lives. Lord, as I often pray, Lord, I pray that my words, what's of the flesh, what I accidentally throw out there would just fall to the ground quickly and only the words that are from you will remain. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter. If you have your journal, turn to 1 Peter. But one way or another, phone, uh, turn to 1 Peter. Okay, so we began last week looking at this, this book and Sam walked us through these three truths. Okay, Sam told us in verses 1 through 5 that God has caused us to be born again. That's truth number 1. God guards our inheritance. That was truth number 2. And then truth number 3, that God guards us for that inheritance, which is salvation. So I mentioned Ephesians a moment ago. If you haven't read through Ephesians recently, I encourage you to do so. But if you'll notice, and I know that I sound like a broken record to the people that have been here for a long time. 
the first three chapters of Ephesians, we called that the position section. You have position, and then you jumped into practice, and then you jumped into protection. Okay, under the position section, we were talking about who we are in Christ. And I said probably 15 times that the beginning of Ephesians shows you your salvation, not through your lenses, but through God's lenses. It's this heavenly peripheral perspective of who we are in Christ and all that he has done. And if you miss that, if you just say, oh yeah, I get all of that, and you just jump right into chapter four, you could inadvertently jump into a works Christianity because it goes pretty quickly into do this, don't do this, act this way and don't act that way. And I think that Paul in Ephesians is trying so hard to solidify in our hearts and our minds that you can't do those things unless you understand positionally what Jesus has done. Well, because of going through that study in Ephesians, I can't help but see the same thing right here in this glorious book of 1 Peter. Because he's starting off with the gospel itself. He's telling us later that we need to be holy. He's telling us that we need to love our spouses. And he's going to tell us like how we suffer well. But first and foremost, he's reminding them and he's reminding us that all things start with the gospel. That is contingent upon, as it says in verse number three, if you want to look back up, it says our living hope. And then also in verse number three, the fact that we are born again. So he begins with the gospel, and we're going to come back to this same gospel over and over and over as we work our way through chapter 5, because the gospel has to be the very foundation for all that we do and for who we are. If you've attended Starting Point, today we have membership. I'm sure we'll say it again today in our membership class, but we'll talk about the table. And on top of the table, before you even look at these legs, you know, you've got uh, worship and you've got community and you've got service and multiplication. This makes up the table that we call really Christianity. But on top of the table is one thing and one thing only, and it's the gospel. When we say that we're a gospel-centered church, that means that we're going to go back to the gospel over and over. And sometimes when I say that, People are like, what does that mean? We know that Jesus died for our sins, but the gospel is so much more, you know, all-encompassing, you know, the, than the fact that he died for our sins. It's our future. It's our today. It's him in us. It's our identity. It's our reason for being able to suffer well. It's all of these things and more. We can go back to the gospel as being the answer for those things. Also notice this in verse number two, he says, and I just love this phrase. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. I just love that. You know, this is my blessing upon you, Sam Adams. This is my blessing upon you on, on the church. I pray that grace and peace would be multiplied to you. So uh, Peter says that. And then if you walk through this book, he's going to pray and, and, and hopefully teach in such a way that this grace and peace will be multiplied as he talks about gospel understanding, as he talks about this is your sanctification, a word, word we're going to discuss in a moment. Citizenry, you know, a word that we don't use very often. Um, within your homes, within sufferings, within trials, all of these things, the grace and the peace afforded us through the gospel be multiplied to you as you better understand all of these things. So from chapter 1, 1, all the way through chapter 1, 12, it's nothing but gospel. 
And then once you get into 13 and you work your way all the way till the end of chapter 5, it's going to be more of kind of like what we looked at in Ephesians. It's the practice. It's the application or it is actually the living out the gospel. So when you look at the passage that we're going to discuss today, we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. Okay. If you back up and look at what Sam taught last week, really starting in, in verse number 3, you can see this outline. Okay, in these first nine verses. So last week, gospel, Sam talked about the fact that we are saved. Okay, we got that. That's gospel. Well, in today in verses uh, three through five, or I'm sorry, six through eight, we're going to see that we are being saved. I know that sounds confusing. I'll explain in a moment. And then if you look at verse number nine, it says that we are going to be eternally saved. There's this saved component. You're saved, you're being saved, and one of these days you're going to be eternally saved. Now, that may not make a whole lot of sense, but if you look at it scripturally, it does, that there really is a process. If you understand that, think about passages such as uh, Philippians you know, chapter 2, when Paul looks at the church of Philippi and says, therefore... Because of, you know, the, these truths of the gospel, uh, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, well, what does he mean by that? Either Jesus died for us and we believe in that and that's all we need to do, or we have to work for our own salvation. Well, it's not saying work for your salvation, but you're working out your salvation with this reverence and this, this holy fear. And it says, the next, next passage, it says, because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purposes. God is in you. The spirit of the risen Christ has come to reside within you, and he is saving you. It's a process. That's what we call sanctification. He doesn't just come in, you know, help you to see the gospel, remove the scales off your eyes, and then bring you into glory. He doesn't do that. We are here to remain as his ambassadors, as though he's making his appeal through us. And the one thing that we have to learn over and over and over, and I'm 54 years old right now, and I feel like I'm only now beginning to see a glimpse of this, is that the only hope that I have in living out Christianity, in living out this gospel, is the resurrected Christ living through me. It is me and it is you learning how to abide in the vine so that he can produce his fruits in us and everything else that we do is just futility. Okay, does that make sense? So if you look at it another way, okay, you can see that we are being saved, saved, being saved, and eternally saved. But here's the words. So look at verses three through five. This is redemption. So when you first come to Christ, that's when you are redeemed. That's redemption. And if you look at verses 6 through 8, that is sanctification. Remember a long time ago, we went through the book of Philippians. I say a long time ago, but we're only like a little over two years old. So a long, long time ago, we went through Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, you know, it says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's always working on us. You know, Sam, you've heard me say probably a bazillion times in situations that we're talking about and people we're talking about. And I say, you never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit working in the life of another believer. The hope that we have in this situation or in this person is the fact that I know that he's a believer and I know that she's a believer. And Jesus is going to show these things to them. I don't have to. 
right? He's always growing us and developing us. So that's that process of sanctification, which actually uses that word if you look at uh, verse number two, and then ultimately glorification that we will one day be eternally, finally saved, no more growing, no more struggles, no more pain, and that will indeed be a glorious thing. Now, with all of that as a way of introduction, you want to look at today's passage. Let's do that together. So let's look at 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9, and I'll do my level-headed best to kind of break down this passage for us. All right, here's the Word of God, church. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And then though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation for your souls or of your souls. Look at verse number six again. The first thing that he says is, look at it. He says, in this you rejoice. Okay, so church, what is the this that he's referring to? What's he talking about? Yeah, he's talking about our faith. He's talking about our gospel. He's talking about the things that he had just told us before, which is the fact that we are born again into this living hope. So this in, in this is speaking of, I've said it for seven minutes now, it's the gospel. It's in the gospel that we rejoice. It's the redemption. It's the fact that he truly has saved us. We rejoice in what he has done. And when I read that, the question that comes to me and probably should come to you is, do I actually rejoice in the gospel? Do I find my heart truly worshiping the Lord for what he has done? And if not, Something's off there. And we'll talk about that as we walk through this. But then watch again, he goes from redemption and he's going to jump right back into sanctification, which is how Jesus works out this gospel in our lives. So looking at specifically 1 Peter 1, 6, the in this is talking about the gospel, but then look at this. He's going to go through you know, some different things that are going to happen to us as a part of this sanctification. He says, in this you rejoice, though for a little while, we'll talk about that, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, what's going to happen is these things are going to come into your life because they're testing your faith. Your faith, which is more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, in the hopes that at the end of this testing that you will be found, it's right there, see it? To result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Faith. Faith is everything. We come to the Lord by faith. Jesus says that unless you have faith as a child, you can't come into the kingdom. You know, multiple times Paul says that the righteous shall live by faith. We know that we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is so important that the word of God says without faith, 
It is actually impossible to even please God. And regarding salvation, anyone can say that they're a believer. Anyone can claim the name of Christ, look the look, carry the Bible, show up to church on a Sunday morning, and say that they have faith. What this passage is saying, though, is that if you really have faith, it will be tested, which leads us to, and I'll only give you two truths today. Truth number one, which is, it's in your worship guide, if you want to fill in the blanks, true faith will always be tested faith. True faith will always be tested faith. You can see it from Genesis all the way to Revelation. True faith will always be tested faith. It's what you guys talked about back in early January. Um, if you weren't here that Sunday, we broke up into tables and we made a copy of James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 and everybody at their table got a copy and you spent 15, 20 minutes just going through and reading it and marking it up and then you discussed it at your table and then each table leader stood up and kind of gave an overview. But that passage was saying to consider it pure joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds because it's the testing of your faith. And it goes on to say that that's necessary. If your faith is not, if it's not tested, it's necessary. If it's not tested, then you'll never be mature and complete. Okay, so faith is absolutely necessary. Look at 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 again. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been tested or you, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith that it'll be found out to be real, that it's genuine, that it is real. And this is huge. So if the conduit for salvation is faith, we're going to be given opportunity after opportunity to show that this faith is truly real within us. Look at this passage here. It underscores what I'm trying to say. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 5. And Paul looks at the church of Corinth after he said everything else in 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2. And then he's ending it saying this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Whether you're in the faith. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about your, yourselves that Jesus is in you? Do you not know that the Holy One, the Creator that created you, He resides within you? Do you not realize that He's working Himself and He's forming Himself and He's growing Himself in you? And He says, unless, of course, you fail the test. Right? And that's what we're doing sometimes when we jump through these trials. Oftentimes, it's a test to see, is it really true that Christ is within me? Is he really changing me? And that's a glorious thing that he even allows us to go through that kind of a testing. You know, he says it in verse number 7 of 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. And look at the, he says at the beginning, he says, I don't have it highlighted or underlined, but he says, so that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith will be tested. These trials are coming, and I'll talk about the trials in a moment. But he says it's critical that they come so that your faith will be tested. There's greater 
purposes behind everything that the Lord does. There's always greater purposes. We don't always see them. And some of them, we will die on this earth and go to heaven without fully understanding. And only then will we understand. One of the greatest lessons I have learned and am still learning is it's actually not always about me. I thought it was me and then the world kind of rotates around me. But actually, that's not true. You know, sometimes King Jesus is doing something in someone else's life that somehow I'm a small part of. And I think, oh, this is about me. What's he doing? And how's he trying to show me this or that and the other? And it really had nothing to do with me. Right? So, but the Lord always has a purpose. The rich man comes up to Jesus and he's like, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus knows his heart. He knows he's got idols. You know, so he looks at him and he points back at the law and he tells him, you know, make sure that you keep the law. Make sure that you obey these things. And what does the guy say? The rich man's, he's almost like, oh, that's easy peasy. I've been doing that my whole life. I've already got that. Is there anything else that I need to do? And Jesus is like, okay, you're a rich man. Go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor and then come follow me. And what does the man do? He puts his head down and he walks away. So why did the Lord do that? Because his greater purpose of pointing to the law first was then to be able to come back to the law. And the first part of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and your strength. But you don't even do that because you actually love your possessions more than you love the Lord. It was a good test. It was a good showing of this guy's heart to reveal something that he may not have realized was there. These various trials that you and I will go through individually and then maybe even collectively as a church they're good because they're going to reveal things in our hearts they're going to come so that our faith will be tested and hopefully at the end of that we're going to find a genuine faith that truly does rejoice in what god has done that's a good thing it's a good thing to have the lord test us Let's look at verse 6 again. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you'd be grieved by various trials. I'd love to spend more time going through everything that's in this passage. He's going he's to say something, or he did say something like, if necessary. I'd love to talk about that. We're just not going to have time for that. Um, also, just gold tested by fire. There's a nice little lesson there, but we're not going to have time for that. So I'm going to hit these three specific things that you see right here. Okay, the first one is little while. Little while. My favorite phrase in the Bible, I want to warn you, this is a terrible pastor's pun. It says, and it came to pass. It didn't come to stay, it came to pass. You can chuckle, you know, if you don't, that it's okay. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness these trials, they don't always come to stay. They come to pass, they're there for a reason and for a season, but typically they don't last forever. There will be an end, even if it's just eternity itself. And for some people that are sitting here today, the one truth that you need to be reminded of is the fact that it's short-term. It's temporary. Whatever it is that you're going through, no matter how painful it is, it will come to an end at some point in time. And that's a good thing. 1 Peter 5.10, which we're not going to preach through yet, but one day we will, says this. So fast forwarding a few chapters down, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, 
a little while, same phrase, a little while, but look at what he says afterward and put this in your gospel pockets and just take it home with you. He says, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, hear this people, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's going to last a little while. And then God is going to meet you and he's going to strengthen you. He's going to confirm himself in you. He's going to establish you. He's going to restore you and send you back out. And you're going to be better and you're going to be stronger when you go back out. Isn't that great? It's a glorious truth. 1 Peter 1, 6 again. And this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, our next word that we want to look at. You have been grieved by various trials. Grieved. Lipeo is the word that's used here. It means to give pain or distress, to be sad or to be sorrowful. There's nothing pleasant about the word grieved. There's nothing easy about it, I guess I should say. We could all give examples of people that are hurting and grieving. One of my former students, a couple of weeks ago, he took his life. And it was a, a very, very difficult time for his family members and those of us that knew him and that loved him. And that family is grieving right now. There are people that I know within this congregation that have just recently gone through very, very difficult things. We've lost loved ones. We've had miscarriages. We know people that have taken their lives. There's just a grieving that takes place when this is a part of the situation that you're going through. He uses this word grieve for a reason. There's a different kind of grieving. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians where it talks about a godly sorrow that brings repentance. Oftentimes I find myself praying for friends and family members and, you know, people that I love that don't know Christ. And I pray that God would give them a godly sorrow that brings repentance, that leads to salvation. Because that godly sorrow is when we look at our sin and we look at ourselves and we're grieved by what we find. We're grieved by our sin and our sinful condition and our rebellion and our pride and our stubbornness and all of those things. We just don't recognize it and know that it's there. We're grieved by it. It's a true godly sorrow. Grieved is a hard word, but it's an accurate one. It reminds us that the trials that we're going through, they're hard. They're real. They're painful. They bring distress. Sometimes they bring sadness and sorrow. There may be peace in the midst of it. There may even be joy in the midst of it. But the thing that we go through oftentimes is hard. And then the last word in this particular passage is various. Various. In, your, in this you rejoice for a little while. You've been grieved by various trials. The word means exactly what you think that it would mean. It means varied, all kinds of diverse, manifold. There's various trials for various people and various trials for various seasons. What you are going through may not be the same thing that someone else is going through. 
And sometimes in our hearts, we might look at what someone else is going through and say, well, what's the big deal about that? That's not so hard. That doesn't seem so difficult to me. Well, you're not them and I'm not them. We don't understand how Jesus is forming himself in them and the thing that he's trying to do and show them. But to them, it's causing grief and it's real pain. And this body, as I said, has had in two short years, its share of real grief and real pain. And we know that it hurts. And church body, if it hurts them, him, her, it has to hurt us too. We are one body. We share that pain. If we're not sharing that pain, that needs to cause a godly sorrow within us that causes us to repent. Because inadvertently, we have made it about us instead of us. Real pain, real sorrow, real grieving, the church grieves together. We rejoice together. We celebrate together, but we also grieve together. And then afterward, hopefully, that trial is going to reveal this real faith. You know, he's saying afterward that this, your faith may be found, look at verses 7b through 9, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In other words, when we come out the other side saying, praise be to God, I do believe. I believe that Christ is the son of God. I believe that he died, that he loved me. He gave himself for me. I believe that the gospel is my only hope. When you can come out of the other side of that thing that you've gone through, that grievous trial, and you can say, I believe the gospel. And I rejoice despite how painful it was. What a beautiful, awesome, amazing, glorious thing that that is. Because what you're doing is you're seeing that you really do belong to the king. Your faith has remained intact. Truth number two, tested faith. This is in your worship guide if you want to fill in the blanks that results in genuine, sustainable belief will increase a believer's love and joy for Christ and his church. When we're tested and we come out on the other side and we recognize, ah, the gospel really is true. I really am his. It's been solidified in my heart. And I find that though I've got a limp now, because I feel like I've wrestled like Jacob with God. There's just a joy. There's a joy that I can't explain. And that joy can only come from the living Christ that resides within me. Revealing, yes, I am your father and you are my son. You are in the palm of my hands. Golly, I love that. You love him, it says. Even though you haven't seen him. You believe in him. You rejoice in him with a joy that is inexpressible 
and filled with glory. And then one of these days, that's going to lead to a glorification. The final outcome of your souls to rest in the presence of the Lord. When our faith is tested and we still love Jesus that we've not seen and experienced a joy that is unexplainable to the world, that's confirmation of our, our eternal security in Jesus Christ, that we know we're his and in his hands. The final outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, saved, truly saved, and one day no more trials, no more grief, no more pain. And to be reminded of that in the middle of and at the end of these trials, I don't know, there's something about that because it gives you hope. It reminds you that it will come to an end. If you look at Hebrews 12, you're going to see that our Lord did the same thing. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You talk about a grievous trial. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the middle of it, for the joy set before him, he endured, endured the cross. And we can do the same thing being reminded that there's better days ahead, even if it's only at the end of our lives. There's too much to unpack in this passage. I want to get to our baptism, so I'm going to bring things to a close with a couple of simple questions for all of us as a church. First question is just, where are you this morning? Where are you? Is your faith being tested if so, are you believing the gospel or do you find yourself trying to rescue yourself instead? Are you believing that there's a higher kingdom purpose or as I often do, do you find yourself sitting alone, you know, singing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen and nobody knows my sorrow. It's an easy thing to wallow in self-pity and to miss this thing that the Lord is trying to do in our lives. Is your faith being strengthened? Or, going back to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, if you examine yourself, maybe you find out, I don't know that I ever believed to begin with. I don't know that my faith was ever real. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the church and I believe that there's one God, but I've never had a godly sorrow that brings repentance, that leads to salvation. I've never repented of my own sins. Well, what a glorious thing that he's allowed a trial to come in your life that would reveal this to you now instead of when it's too late, right? Man, embrace that. We have people in this body who spent their whole lives in church but they didn't believe the gospel. This is where you swallow your pride. You repent well and you say, I believe. Or with some of us, maybe we've just forgotten. If you go to 2 Peter, which I hope that we preach through in the fall, the very first chapter, 
it says that some of us have just forgotten that all of our sins have been forgiven. This is why we don't rejoice. This is why we don't have joy. This is why we're not loving the Lord. We've forgotten that everything that we have done in sinning against God has been forgiven. If we're going through trials, I think the prayer is that God would position our hearts to trust his sovereignty and to open up our eyes and show us what we need to be shown. And if you fail the test, to be willing to repent. We can help you with that. We can walk you through the gospel. And again, some of us, we just need a slap in the face to say, oh my gosh, my sins have been forgiven. Why would I not have joy? And then just rejoice. I close just by reading, backing up to what Sam read last week. The word of God. Listen to this. Just let it sink in and then we'll close in prayer. Verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your very souls. The word of God is powerful. May it not return to us void, but have its work in our hearts this morning. Let's bow and pray.